Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Hi, Joe. Hello, Alex. How Hi. are you? Oh, super. You look very colourful. Thank you. Tell the listeners about your shirt. Um, it, it's from a small league uh, in Portland a few years back, the, the Toffee League. And uh, What uh, makes it a Toffee League? That was the name. But does it have any significance? I didn't look it up. Feels like you might have researched that, possibly. Just, <laughs> Just yeah. bought the shirt. And Seb Stafford-Bloor, who's not supposed to talk before I introduce him. Hi, Seb, how are you? Hello, Joe Devine. I'm very well, thank you. Fantastic. Uh, it was a big day of footy today, and we're going to talk about it at the end of a big day of footy. I'm very excited now, I have to say. Gripped by the tournament, finally. It's taken me a long time. Turns out, I just needed the big teams to play <laughs> and the good football to start. And now I love it. But before we talk about that, let me remind you, listeners, that you can subscribe to The Athletic currently for £1 per month for six months. Uh, that is a fantastic deal, one of the best deals of the year. And you can do that by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO football. Now, I will tell you that I have uh, found it useful to no end visiting and reading the in-depth previews of every team before they play and uh, really making me sound better and cooler on the podcast. So if you have a podcast and you need to sound better and cooler, that's a good reason to read The Athletic. Also for personal interest and something to do on the loo. Uh, Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO football. But without further ado, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Alex Stewart, Seb Stafford-Bloor and the Euros. Let's begin with, I'm gripped. I did that bit. I'm gripped, though. Um, as I said, Seb, I think I just needed to see some big teams play some big games, and France-Germany, just the ticket. Um, let's begin with that game. It was a bit of an odd one, wasn't it? Because in some ways, it felt like Germany had the upper hand, uh, but also France always looked more dangerous on the ball. Yeah, even when they weren't doing anything with it, you always had that sort of sense that there was a latent threat that... Um and actually, that, that kind of came to pass in the second half. It didn't really take much for Kylian Mbappe to have chances, create chances for himself. I think also, I think part of it was Germany were a lot better than we thought they were going to be. Is that yeah. fair? Because it, well, they were, they were. No one knew what they were going to be, right? I think there so was, it was a surprise either way. Whatever happens. Yeah, because the last couple of years of the German national team have been a bit chaotic. There've been a lot of chopping and changing. There's been a lot of different defensive combinations and systems, and so that breeds this sense of uncertainty. And if you match that up to what seems like inevitability, which is France's strength and depth, France's best players in the tournament, France being overwhelming favourites, you kind of, you expected something a little bit more comprehensive. And I think, you know, Germany, Germany, did Germany really ever look like scoring? I mean, it feels like they had a lot a of bit. pressure. They, they had, did a bit. Yeah. Nabry had, had that great chance. Yeah, he did. And then there was a couple of good clearances. I, I just, I don't know. There was just something slightly missing. Germany. Gosen's had a good chance, but instead he just um, thighed we, in the head. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Was there mm. a specific moment when it gripped you, though? Because obviously you have a game like that which just shoves a lot of really, really good footballers onto the same pitch and it's kind of captivating. No, I don't want to be unfair to Portugal. It was the, it was the day that gripped me oh, the, before the, whole the football began. You got quite invested in Hungary earlier. We all did. No, actually. no, I was invested in Portugal. No, but I mean, we, we, you were you up the on game. Your, yeah, you were up on your feet when Hungary scored the goal that wasn't given. That was probably coincidental. Do you know what? I can't remember that. That's a long time ago. I mean, you spend a lot of time just kind of pushing yourself around on that chair. 
you know, on the coasters of the chair, but you were definitely up. But where he was doing the rowing thing. He does the like rowing this, thing a couple of times a day. And then he yeah. pulls like a smiley He face. learned to do that yesterday and he hasn't really he stopped learning. Actually, I le- learned it. to do that on Saturday, mate. So pay he, closer attention. Uh, I don't know. I've been gripped all day. I, as I said, I think it's just big, ta- big teams, big teams. This is, we're, and we're, later on, we're going to talk about the, um, the stakes yeah, uh, in the are. tournament because I think there's a, a crucial error with the Euros and we, we saw that in 2016 too. We'll, we'll come to that. But I do honestly think the spacing of big games hasn't, or big teams even, isn't great for obvious reasons. Group of Death, the final day of the first round. Yeah. Also the fact that there were only two games today didn't feel quite so overwhelming to watch all of them. Uh, I think I just like good players. <laughs> I think that's it. I think if I was an ordinary fan, and in many cases I am, uh, which game would I choose to watch? The big game, because that's who I am. I feel like a game like Germany-France kind of transcends our issues with the lack of jeopardy in the tournament. Yes. Germany-France is always a big game, whether it's in a yeah. championship, a World Cup, a friendly, doesn't matter. It's always so much history between the two countries, sporting and political. It matters. Yeah. And I think... Well, England-Croatia is the only other game of stature which comes anywhere near it, and it's nowhere near. And also, that was only really true because we're watching in England and we have a vested interest in England's progress, whereas this was kind of... This is our first kind of neutral moment in the tournament where you thought sure. we were all sat down, we were all into it, it grabbed us all and everyone was kind of, well, apart from when the food arrived, everyone was really invested in it. <laughs> yeah, we okay. Um, let's talk about France's midfield, Alex, because they were very exciting. We, we, we will come back to talk more about Germany too. Um, but uh, France's midfield, super hot. Yeah, Pogba's performance was wonderful, but also Kante and Rabiot particularly as well. Yeah, I, I think... Um, Rabio obviously kind of gets left to one side in this because everyone loves Kante and recognizes his value. Uh, and he showed different aspects of the Kante. So there was there was the screening, there was the tackling, but there was also that lovely break into the right half space uh, in the second half where he kind of just catapulted France forwards again. Um, Pogba, I thought, had the best game I can recall him having for quite some time. Big time. And that was, you know, obviously the the beautiful ball through uh that that forced the own goal the ball that was played through for the i want to say second offside chance yeah yes um so his range of passing was excellent his ball carrying was excellent but also the the solidity that the other two gave him and i think what rabio was able to do uh similar to what calvin phillips was doing for england was because the better players were attracting german attention Rabia was very often free and he used that freedom either to be uh, the receiver of an out ball to then shuttle it on somebody else or to make late runs, which weren't really being picked up because if you're Germany, naturally your attention is going to be on that front three and on Pogba and on some of the bursts coming from the wide areas. And I thought Rabio thrived in that kind of box to box role partly because he escaped attention. Um, I think it's also worth noting that that the France midfield covered for the defence really well. So we, yeah. we were talking before a little bit about how the French centre-backs have this tendency to pull quite wide apart from each other, where the full-backs are pushing quite high up uh, and then potentially getting turned and finding themselves in a slightly tricky position. Particularly on the right-hand side, Varane will go very, very wide right to help out. Uh, Kempembe does it a little bit less on the left, but also has this tendency. And there were a couple of times where Germany, 
I think in one instance they managed to get the pass through and, and, and the shot didn't come off. But a couple of times it was only for the fact that Rabiot or Kante were filling in really, really deep that that French defensive weakness wasn't exploited. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something, you know, France, obviously a great team, you know, fun to watch, lots of good players and everything. But there is a frailty there in that defence with the way the centre-backs split. And if it weren't for the excellence of the midfield defensively, as well as the eye-catching work they did going forwards, I think Germany would have posed even more of a threat. I mean, what do you, having seen them play now, it's hard to find anything to say about France's attack that hasn't already been said before. Yeah. And in a minute, we're going to talk about it in a slightly different way as it relates to the two offside goals. But I think I forget, I don't watch... I don't watch international football very often outside of outside of tournaments. Watching this game, particularly in the first half, Germany completely dominated the possession. France really didn't provide that much, although, as Seb said earlier, every time they got the ball, they mm. did look very dangerous and very threatening. And we know, as we can see from those two offside goals as well, that you know, if you give them the ball in space, it's sort, of, it's sort of game over, even if there are four defenders in the way, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but what do you make of their chances going for playing Portugal in the group, like, beyond that they felt a little bit limited in today's game, a little bit more than they did in the World Cup. I, I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Because they're, they're obviously going to adapt to, you know, France, well, this is a Euro qualification thing generally, right? So you can play lots and lots and lots of international games. And if you're France, you're only going to come up against a Germany or a Portugal, maybe one game in 20 because in your qualification games, you're playing against teams that are going to seed yeah. possession, sit really, really deep. And so I suspect, I haven't looked, but I would suspect that France uh, will have dominated possession in pretty much all of their last games. And this this would have been quite a reversal for them. And it's difficult if you're used to being on the front foot and you're used to pressing up. And if you look at how France play against other teams, they try and work openings on in the wide areas, they're much more patient and then they'll accelerate forwards. And this is why they like having ball carriers like Pogba or Griezmann who can run at the defence and force them back and then give those passing options. When they're playing against a German team that doesn't want to give the ball up, it, it's trickier for them. But I think what is good about this France performance is that they've shown in their previous games that they can work under those circumstances. Here they've showed that they can remain sufficiently solid against a team that hogs possession, a team that actually generated some pretty decent opportunities. And when you've got Griezmann's ability to drop off and link play and Pogba's ability to play passes through the lines, there is always still a threat. And Benzema added to that today as well. Benzema added to that with the hold-up play and with the little cute passes. Again, just with smart play. Benzema and Griezmann also worked really hard off the ball. That's not, and actually Mbappe, I mean, Mbappe made a couple of challenges in his own half, like yeah. tracking back and stuff. So this is a team that has solidity, it has a work ethic, and it has the ability to match the way that it plays against the opponent that, that it's facing. And I didn't come away from that thinking, I came away from that, like Seb said, thinking Germany are a lot better than we thought they were. Although actually, if you watch them against... Uh, whoever it was in their 7-1. Latvia? Estonia. 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 Latvia. Yeah. Someone like that. It was like they were really good in that game. So yeah. it's not that much of a surprise. But I didn't see anything that made me think uh, France uh, France aren't all they're cracked up to be. No, but put it this way. I mean, and we can we can expand this to talk about Germany a bit, 
a bit more in a bit more depth. But I felt like the main thing that the the German team lacked today was, you know, being clinical in front of goal. Yeah, they did totally. have chances. Yeah, their, their XG shows that too. Yeah. Um, they dominated the ball as we've already said. If they were a little bit more clinical, I think Seb made the point earlier when we were watching the game that if they had more of a recognised nine or if, if Muller had been able to fulfil that role a little bit slightly differently today, they could have scored goals against this France team, right? So, like, I think, I think I'm think i saying this because, you know, prior to the tournament, the discussion is all about France for very obvious reasons and they, they, they fill the narrative as this kind of concrete, all-breaking team that are unbeatable. Yeah. And that, it, I feel, I see frailty where uh, there should obviously be frailty. There's no perfect football but, team, right? But that's exactly the point. There yeah. is no perfect it's, it's football team. It's a perspective team. and expectations thing. And in a low-scoring game where a, a thing one goal, happen, yeah. <laughs> you know, like one on goal there or the, you know, I know we'll come on to talk about them later, but Hungary holding out until a horrible deflection off the Guerrero shot that kind of opened the floodgates... It, there is no flawless team in this. And we've now seen all of the main contenders at least once. And it's very clear that you can identify weaknesses with all of them. Yeah. Um, I just think that France have, in particular Mbappe, they have a thing that I don't think any other team has, which is one person who, if you give them the ball, one time in two, one time in three is going to do something unstoppably good. Yeah. I don't think anybody else has that player. Like the uh, the first offside goal. Like the first offside goal. Let me ask you guys something. Did you find France more fun than you were expecting to? I know they didn't have a lot of the ball, but when I when I think back to 2018 and that World Cup performance, they scored goals and they had moments when they played very well, but they felt a bit Didier Deschamps. It was much more functional. It was much more functional. Blaise Matuidi in the kind of left wing, but really tracking back exactly sort that. of role. I, you know, that did that limited it. I think. I think the reintroduction of Benzema yeah. is really, really important. Rabiot, to that. Look, we've touched on Rabiot already, but I felt like the balance in that midfield was perfect. Yeah, like I, I am happy to be corrected, but it's one of the best games I've seen Paul Pogba play for anybody for a really long time. Just because, I mean, we Joe and I spoke in the, at the end of the first half mm-hmm. about where he was receiving possession and the kind of areas he was aiming his own passes into. And that's true. I think if you look at the passing maps, you see him having a really, really sort of pronounced attacking influence. But also, if you if you look at sort of some of his defensive um, uh, contributions and the authority with which he stepped into the play, took the ball away and moved it quickly and directly up the field and brought mm. other players into the team, it's like that's the Paul Bogba you want to see. And I've always thought that, okay, when, when Paul Bogba plays Man United, there's a lot of other things in inverted commas that are attached to the criticism of him. But one of them, and I think one of the fair ones is you have this wonderfully gifted player who is, he's a spectacle, isn't he? He does everything really, mm-hmm. really well. And that was the performance. That is the hundred million pound midfielder. You, yeah. you saw tonight and you think, goodness, you're gifted and you yeah. can do anything. And it's, it's, it's the about, guy who can break a midfield press on his own with yeah. the ball at his feet, with three players, yeah. you know, yeah. within arm's reach. Or, or it's a guy spot that, can change that pass. Exactly. That, that kind well, of all of these things around. at once, right? Well, a guy that can change the direction of a game. The guy that can say, yeah. I'm taking the ball away from you now because I'm technically gifted. I am um, physically better. I am all of these attributes. Like I am the the midfielder that you would design from the feet up if you had the chance. And he was he was magnificent. It was absolutely brilliant. And lovely to see him play that well as well. Can I can I make a point there though? Because you, you know you said 
did we enjoy France? What I enjoyed about France was the individual performances. Yeah. Right. And I enjoyed yeah. watching Rabiot particularly as well. Pogba is the is the obvious standout. <clears throat> I enjoy watching Mbappe every single time I see him play. And you could probably say that for many of the individual members. What I enjoyed about Germany was the way that they played as a team. And what was missing were those individual performances. I, you know, the clinicalness in front of goal, um, finishing the, off those the focal chances, point maybe, the focal point perhaps too. If you if you added, like I kept thinking, Germany had a, a lot of crossing opportunities. Like the ball was at Kimmich's feet a lot of times, sort of in that kind of uh, area parallel to the penalty box. And if you had a Mario Gomez in there, you have a Miroslav closer. If you chucked a, a Karsten Janker in there, possibly going a little bit further back, you could see them having a lot of joy. But I think one area where Germany lacked is the system worked in that it created the opportunity to create the chances. Yes. But there was nothing to aim that at. And yeah. that's kind of the difference between the two sides because France, it's the opposite. You can have a, an Mbappe who can make something out of quite literally nothing. There's a moment we, we accelerated past, I think it was Hummels in the second half in about 15 hours of space. It's astonishing to see. Germany don't have that. Germany don't have a weapon that they can use in those areas. Really. If you if you watch Germany in their last couple of games where they've been using the three four three, they they don't they haven't used a focal point at any yeah. point. What they've done is they've managed to create rotations at such speed. Yeah. Uh, against Latvia or Estonia, and I feel terrible for not remembering the seven one. The chat is telling that. us it's Latvia. I could have sworn right. it's Estonia. Okay. But I think I thought it the was chat Latvia. never lies. Sure, so it's Latvia sometimes. <laughs> it's not true. It lies, it definitely it, lies. It lies quite a lot. But they, in this instance, scored, you know, it seems in good faith. They scored the same goal twice. Yeah, basically, um, but they scored it with different players filling those roles. So the first time it was Gerson's, the second time it was Muller, and it was because they were getting these really, really quick rotations and runs in behind. And I thought going into this game, that's where they would profit against France because of this centre back thing. Uh, yes, chat never lies. I said that. No, chat I, never no lies. I said that to start with. I'm just helping out. Okay, cool. Yes. Um, and and the problem was that I don't think at any point, and this was a lot to do with with France's work ethic off the ball. Mm. There wasn't any point where they were able to really break in behind the fullbacks at enough pace yeah. to generate those sorts of movements. You could see them doing it, but they were doing it at half speed. French defence was never out of position either. The, well, they I mean, there were a few times where the centre-backs were pulled too wide, but there was always cover. But when they were going, Joe pointed out that they were, they were falling back into this 4-4-2 mid-block, which meant that the wide areas were quite well covered. And and so Germany couldn't break into those areas behind at enough pace. But it was interesting that it was Gerson's who got forward to clock Pavard, because that those are the sorts of interior runs that those wing backs make. And it was an exceptional piece of defending from Pavard. But it was the one time where you had a player attacking a ball into the box at real pace. And Germany didn't do that enough otherwise. I thought it was interesting that it was him as well, because if you think about would you can what would you associate with the German fullback positions or defense generally at the moment? Energy. Fluck. No, what well, I mean, yes, in, in terms of the players they have on the pitch, but also flux. You don't you don't associate that kind of run with a team which is kind of transitioning in a certain area where it's kind of there isn't an established number one in any position. There are players being tried, yeah. but there aren't kind of components that, that that just slot into the into their roles and know what their their duty well, is. Well, this is a Germany team that was playing Emre Chan as a left back. Six months I ago. Mean, I, before the talk, about six weeks ago, there are people that thought Emery Chan would be a starting centre-half in this game, which is like... Wild. 
it's wild and it's a position he's played for Dortmund, but it kind of goes to show, firstly, like how um, how many other things have been tried in that defence, how many other you know alternatives have, have gone before, but also just how shallow the talent pool is at the moment. No disrespect to Emre Can because he's a good player and he's has been for a long time, but he's not a he's not he doesn't fit into that sort of list of great German centre halves of the past. I mean, let's be fair, he just doesn't. Um, so strange, but it's like that was an encouraging moment when you're seeing fullbacks have that kind of influence on a team. That feels like a, a symptom of a team which is healthy, yeah. possibly. Although, again, I think the lack of depth there is a problem. Yeah, big time. Big time. Because if, if Gerson's or Kimmich get injured or suspended, then the people that are coming in are Klosterman and Halstenberg, who it's just a, aren't huge, as good. Huge it's drop a massive drop-off. In the middle, if you lose Hummels, you, I mean, uh, goodness knows, probably Sule comes in. Yeah. That's a problem. Um, it's uh, so it's it's pretty precarious, I'd say. Mm. Squad depth, fragile kind of progress, I guess. Let's talk about those offside goals. Yes, because they were both nice. One of them was extremely nice, and uh, this is the point I would like to make. Mbappe's disallowed goal versus Benzema's disallowed goal is the is the name of this segment. Uh, both technically offside, but one of them is very different to the other one, Seb. Big time. Big, big time. It feels, as a viewer, like you've been cheated more by one of those decisions. Yeah. So talk about the first goal, because you had quite a strong reaction to that. You, that, that. That grabbed you, that moment. I loved that moment. You were up, you were yeah. celebrating, you were happy. It's. It was the, what do they say, the audacity of the player, of Mbappe, to, uh, you know, to even try it. Um, and also, it was, it was yeah, I don't know, a foot offside, maybe, a little bit less than that. Uh, came back on side with the ball almost yeah. immediately. The box, uh, Germany box, was subsequently filled by German players, and he had to curve the ball very precisely, kiss the post on the inside, Lovely but passed like four that. players on the way in. Yeah. Where's the advantage there? Well, he's kind of he's taken the advantage and then he's kind of given it back, hasn't he? Yeah. Because he's fallen back in the play. All of those defenders have collapsed behind the ball, and they're all between him and the goal. They're in formation, and it feels as if he's sort of the phase has reset itself. Yeah. So that he then has to... I, I guess the only argument you could make is that if the players were already set in that position or closer to being set in it, that one of them could be closing him down sooner than they otherwise would have instead of just trying to stand in his way. And, you know, like uh, like uh, Pollard's... Uh, Bollard's, sorry. Pollard's? <laughs> Pollard's in the road. Uh, but I, I would argue with tenacity that the the angle of that shot and the way it was taken and the way it was scored uh, is not stoppable unless you have a player standing in exactly that yeah. position. Yeah. And I feel like a player with Mbappe's quality can can take that shot when someone's running at him or when four people are running at him. And I feel like that isn't the same thing as a, as a pass when Benzema and Mbappe uh, are both off, well, one, one is offside and they're running in behind with 40 yards to, to the German goal. It's fluid. To be able to pass, pass it across, pass the yeah. keeper and tap it into an open net. That's an offside goal. This one... I th- feel like there should be some kind of rule change where it's allowed. Where you can kind of, that feels like if that rule change was to be enacted, it would invite really, really long VAR stoppages. <laughs> sure, I'm down with that. As long as you allow that goal. Peter Walton, I don't want Peter, more Peter Walton. How about this? We, the, another conversation we were having earlier was uh, one in which I said, I'm happy, very happy with extremely subjective referees as long as they're not biased against one specific team. And if they want to make the call that... This, we're going to do this because I think this, if the, for example, in the, in a game, they were allowed to say precisely what I've just said, I'm going to let that goal stand because where's the advantage well, really? Well, I'd be fine with that. Let me, let me, let me draw a comparison. So on uh, Saturday night, we went to the old red lion 
Fabulous theatre That's pub, right, the Old Red Lion Theatre. Not an advert. Not an advert. It's just an organic part of the chat. It's if just, you go this there, is where we've gone. it's in Angel Islington. It's the one. It's the best pub in London. Certainly the best pub to watch football. It's where Seb's happily sleeping upstairs. Really it's just comfortable. underneath a, a bed. Yeah. And uh, if you go there, you can visit uh, the bar and ask for Uncle Damien and tell him that uh, the sent you. Tifo sent you. Ask for Uncle Damien. You'll love Uncle Damien. He's a great guy. Uncle Damien is a great guy, but the point was, is we were gathered at the Old Red Lion and we were watching Belgium on Saturday night and Romelu Lukaku's first goal. Now, by the letter of the law, it's a goal. It's perfectly fine. It's not offside. However, you could argue very clearly there that the advantage taken from Lukaku being in an offside position and kind of profiting from a, say, a kind of a, a little bit of a loophole in the rules, like an ambiguity in the rules is greater than the one that Mbappe exploited for his first goal. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that. It's it's that, I isn't agree. it? It's, yeah, it's, it's so the second one I've got no argument with because he has taken oh, sure. advantage and like he doesn't really need a an advantage in a kind of 60-yard sprint killing Mbappe, does he? So I have to stop us here to say also that another staff member has been identified in the chat despite using a burner account. Henry is clearly watching because he's talking about Rowan's bowling in Finsbury Park. <laughs> which is a venue that Henry never stops talking about. Henry, one of our illustrators, of course, uh, for listeners who don't know. You can follow Henry uh, at, I believe is is at, on Twitter, is Henry Cook. It's at Telstar Designs. At Telstar Designs, yeah. you're absolutely right. And so, Henry uh, shares lots of uh, uh, lovely illustrations and designs and also talks about Rowan's bowling every day. Also is uh, designed a, a super video which got coming out tomorrow on the Illustrator channel about the corridor of uncertainty. Mm. Very good. Very we saw some of that today, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, last thing on this game before we move on is uh, the incident, as we mentioned before, with Gosens and, and Pavar uh, looked like a concussion situation to me. We read that there are no concussion substitutions in this tournament, although there are five subs. So I guess that's how it's slightly different to the Premier League. Fight to the side of the head. It looked like the way, or by the way, that Pavard fell and landed flat on his face without his hands out. It looked like he'd been knocked out. Now, I don't know if that did happen. Mm. But I would uh, venture to say that if he was knocked out, presumably he shouldn't continue, right? If that was the case. Uh, difficult one. If that was the case, yes. Because um, we have to be careful around this. We don't want to pretend that we're experts. But if you watch other sports, I watch a lot of the NRL and um, I watch uh, the way they deal with potential concussions and head injuries. And it seems to me, um, from my layman's perspective, as if other sports are a lot more cautious with what constitutes a concussion. And it looked to me as if uh, he fell in a pretty ugly way. And I don't know, football doesn't help itself sometimes, does it? You don't see the kind of the, the sort of the duty of care that you might in that situation, or at least it isn't obvious to us watching on television. Yeah. Um, but it's... Uh, I'm sure the duty of care is there. The duty it's of just... care is there. It's it's just, it's, it's, not, um, it's not as apparent as it can be in other sports. Mm. And I know football isn't um, isn't as physical as other, other sports, but it's... Um, he landed it's, on his face. He's landed on his face. He doesn't seem to put his arms down. It's a heavy contact. I, If someone wants to explain why it's okay for him to carry on, I, I'm all ears. I just don't... Yeah. It's, it's more that I don't understand it, Joe. I yeah. Think. I, don't, okay. I don't get it. Really. And therefore, anger. What do you think, Alex? I think he was knocked unconscious and should have gone off. There you go. Definitive. If he was knocked unconscious, he should have gone off. Sure, but the 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 angle of his face was 
down, wasn't it? He he kind of he flopped. He basically. didn't put his arms out. <laughs> he didn't put his arms out, and then his head. Isn't that like that's like a reflex? You can't of, not do it. Yeah, I it, to me it looked very much like but, that. Had what that is what had occurred, yeah. and I totally understand. Players are always going to want to continue, right? And that's why with rugby, for example, the decision is removed from them because you, yeah. if you ask a player like. Oh, opening match of the Euros. Do you want to keep playing this game? Yeah, because they're going to say yes. Yeah. So I, what I also know. worries me is, um, yeah, like you watch rugby league and a concussion isn't always obvious. Like it doesn't always have to be right. You're knocked out in the way mm. that is obvious to to us watching around a television. It can be you can see something happen. Like you can see a, a glancing blow to the head. Player can go off, and the commentator says he's failed his HIA assessment. You think, okay, that's interesting. It goes to show how little I know about it, but then yeah. also it feels as if, okay, so what are we missing? Mm. Like, what are the, if I'm not able to spot a concussion, um, then do you see what I'm going with that? It just feels like a, yeah. it's strange. I don't understand it. I need it explained o- to Also, me, I, I don't understand it because I'll take any excuse to go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got a bit of a... I've got a bit of a headache or yeah, don't I've, fancy uh, it, you I know. accidentally walked into the door just a bit. You know, I'm going to yeah. go going to go home now. The other thing we should mention before we finish this game is uh, Matt Hummel scored a very funny own goal. Uh, unfortunate. I mean, the ball was put into the corridor of uncertainty. A little bit of a plug there. It was. It was. Stuart Garlick in the chat uh, so, saying uh, that's a cricket term. We know it's a cricket term. You will Stuart. understand that we know it's a cricket term in the morning. Give it about 12 hours, Stuart, and uh, you can uh, can watch the video. But um, I feel sorry for Matt Summers. Doesn't really have a choice, does he? Either he doesn't have a swing at the ball and Kylian Mbappe scores, or he does, and he kind of Jamie Pollocks himself. Sure. Google that reference. You said that during it. the game as well, and I, you, know, you said, like, it's either he puts it in the goal or Mbappe say, does. And I said, oh, he kicks it anywhere other than <laughs> the goal. I mean, like, <laughs> there is that option as well. It's, it's just his body position. It's really hard, because he has to get that contact exactly right. Otherwise, what happens, what happened, happens. Um, so, bit of sympathy. Poor Matt Hummels. Bit of sympathy. Okay, fine. Uh, well, uh, we'll be back um, shortly after this. And we're back. Hello. Uh, now we're going to talk about Portugal 3, nil Hungary. Very exciting. Three goals. The first coming 84 <laughs> minutes into the game from Rafael Guerrero. Then two from Cristiano Ronaldo. It looked, Alex as though we were heading towards a nil-nil. And uh, well, even Hungary themselves had uh, one or two chances in the second half. They frustrated Portugal, who couldn't seem to get anything going. Largely, it seemed to us, because of their midfield, which was weird and stolid and, and slow, and I didn't yeah. like it at all. No, you didn't like it. Stolid's a really good you word You were angry. I was... I wouldn't say I was angry. I mean, I have no vested interest in Portugal not doing that. But it was frustrating. Uh, if you're a fan of progressive football. Because what they had was two deep-sitting central midfielders, Danilo and William Cavallio. One of them would drop in to make a three, either to the side or in the middle. We know all of this stuff because it happens a lot. But usually it happens so that teams can carry the ball forwards uh, so that they have a, a solid base in that rhombus or that triangle that allows them to move the ball up the pitch while they're passing it around themselves yeah compress the space then look for the passes and one of them goes and the and other one, of them one goes. stays right and all yeah. that happened here was they both stayed they both stayed there was a pass out to one of the fullbacks and then the fullbacks did their level best to carry it up the pitch yeah. 
And Actually, worse than that, wasn't it? Because uh, 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 Danilo stayed, and then Carvalho kind of stayed and kind of went, but was then subsequently not really well, in any kind of position. There, there were a kind of number thing. of instances where once the fullbacks had pushed the ball, uh, or once the fullbacks had advanced a bit, you would have the double pivot there with uh, the centre backs potentially in possession. And the double pivot seemed to be really, really good at getting itself into what we call a cover shadow. So basically with a man blocking the pass to them. They were so slow and so ponderous that they weren't getting out of those shadows. They weren't making themselves available to receive the ball. And of course, what's happening further up the pitch should be scintillating, right? So you've got Bernardo Silva, you've got Diego Jota, you've got all of these players who can do super cool things with the ball and drop in and collect it or make runs in behind. But if they can't get the ball because there's no progressive passing through the middle, everything is being focused down the wide areas, it becomes incredibly easy, particularly for a 5-3-2, to kill that off. And that's what happened. Yeah, and also it felt a little bit at times in the game that some of the forwards didn't have brilliant games either right I don't think there was any one player for Portugal who caused me to think you know fantastic performance from that individual Renato Sanchez for 10 minutes for 10 minutes <laughs> but that's that's the thing he changed the entire dynamic of the game yeah with with that that substitution of him and I mean don't get me wrong Rafa Silva came on and got two assists and won a penalty that's really good but he was able to do that because Renato Sanchez added direct dynamic running from central midfield, which had been incredibly absent up to that point. Yeah. And Andre Silva was up front, backing into central defenders, causing a nuisance, not necessarily looking to run in behind, but allowing there to be space for other players to look to do that. All of a sudden, you've got two players for Portugal who are creating space for the others. And that's when suddenly stuff happened. Prior to that point, Portugal could have kept possession for pretty much the entire time, and they would have really not looked like they were going to score. So let me ask you this question then. In fact, I'll ask you this question. Yeah. This game for Portugal was a must-win, obviously. Yeah. It's the Hungary and the group of death. Uh, it's the team that you assume the other two teams are going to beat, right? Yeah. So it's it's not an option. Why, if what Alex is saying is true, and it very much appears to be, would you play a very conservative midfield double pivot instead of playing Renato? Like, what's the danger in playing Renato Sanchez in this game if you've got Danilo shielding and making the rumbus with the back four? Exactly what I was about to ask Alex. I don't understand it because it's such an obvious issue to die. If they did it against France, I might I understand. understand that you can you can you can defend a conservative approach against a team like France. But it feels as if you if you you'd you'd pick one of William Carvalho or Danilo, and that would be enough. That would be enough protection. But I don't see, it's also, we're, it's not as if Renato Sanchez is without defensive attributes. It's not as if he can't contribute in that area and that he can't, he can't act as an eight, providing, a, you know, a, um, an output in both directions. So I didn't understand it. And also, I didn't understand why anyone would expect it to go differently. If you have those two midfielders in those positions, why you'd have expected anything other than that little chasm between um, the forward line in the midfield yeah. and all the football being played away from that sort of corridor in front of the penalty box. That was really weird to me. And and you, it's almost as if you're, it's a, it's a, it's what you would do if you wanted to kind of minimize the effect of all your best attacking players. <laughs> so Bruno Fernandes and Bernardo Silva, Ronaldo, like someone in the chat said that Jota had a, a really bad game. Jota, sorry, Portuguese. Thank you, Joe. Um, 
I don't really agree. I just don't think the team was set up to um, to for him to do anything other than what he did because I see him as he's an extension player, isn't he? We were talking about this at yeah. half time. He's a he's part of whatever else is going on, and that was true at Wolves. It was true when he was fit uh, early in the season at, at Liverpool. He is not someone that makes things happen. He's someone that capitalizes on the things that are happening around him. It just feels like you you took that away, and it's just uh, it was baffling, absolutely baffling. Here's a good comment from Violet Citizen, uh, who says, "I think the rationale is that you get the double pivot to gel in competitive environment for the two big games." That is the thought that I. But if you if you wanted to work your if you wanted to work your kinks out, if you wanted to sort of you know um, you know stretch your legs a little bit, this is the safe game. This is where you think Hungary are unlikely to um, are unlikely to trouble us. But surely we, you know, surely you want to see what you can do with that attacking approach. Renato Sanchez played very well in the wire people kicking. So I'm laughing at JJ in the chat. He says, Diogo Jota, more like Bioko Jota. (laughs) I was laughing at something else. What were you laughing at? Not going to say. Oh. Either way. Will you say what you were going to say? What I was going to say is that Mm. there is nothing that convinced me more that you shouldn't play that double pivot in the big games than watching that game. Yeah. Because if I'm France or Germany and I'm looking at that that Portuguese double pivot and seeing, yeah, okay, they're decent ball winners, but no one's going to pose a threat. Also... I, 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 I would just... Pogba would be ghosting past them, yeah. right? And yeah, and yeah, yeah. late runs from Gundogan, they're not going to match those. It those just, aren't. That isn't a pair of Kantes that you've got there. That's just no, not like I, I don't. I mean, the, the only thing that I can think of is that, particularly in Guerrero on the left, they they have a fullback who is very very good at getting forwards and also yeah. cutting inside. Maybe there was an expectation that Bruno Fernandez would drop deeper than he did and be able to create that link slightly further down the pitch, take the inside ball from Guero, then have the overlap with that solidity behind so that if the ball breaks from the center, where Fernandez tries to either play it out wide on the overlap or through to one of the runners, if it gets cleared, you've got a really big solid double pivot two for two against the two Hungarian strikers. That's the only thing I can think of, but it feels... Wouldn't like a be... super reductive thing to do against a team that's not very yeah. good. Also, isn't that like isn't that like trying to you're navigating around an obstacle that you've created for yourself? Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like yeah. it's because I I don't I know that when I when I watch Bruno Fernandes play for Man United, I associate him with two positions on the pitch, either up by the penalty box, sometimes in sort of um, open play, going beyond the centre halves and you know into the space behind a defence, but also dropping into a shallow left position down near the touchline. Tonight, I saw him on the other side of the pitch and very rarely in the center within the sort of the sort of the central 25 yard zone. Yeah. Like, I just thought this is like you're, you're marginalizing your best players. Where is the strength in that Portuguese team? It's the front five. Like what about Ruben, Ruben Neves, right? I mean, yeah, but I mean, I, Ruben Neves is, first of all, hasn't had a good season. Sure. I had a bad season at Wolves. Well, not bad, but average. Also, he is not someone that is going to get forward. He's, he'll move the ball. That's helpful. But it feels like that's not quite far enough in um, the Renato Sanchez direction. Like, Neves isn't going to drive forward with the ball. He's not, a, he's not an eight. He's really a, I think he's really a six. I think we thought he was an eight a long time ago, mm. but he's, he's more of a static player. Um, so 
bit confused by it. I mean, I'd be interested to see what they produce in the next game, lineup-wise. If you look at if you look at what Renato Sanchez did for Lille, where he's in a, a midfield yeah. double pivot, occasionally he played in the wide areas. Yeah. But effectively, he was playing with two wide midfielders who would push up inside, one forward who stayed pretty high up, and another forward who dropped off, linked play, made surges past. That sounds an awful lot like how Portugal could play if they set up correctly. Yes, exactly. That. And then you're maximizing Sanchez's ability, which, as you said earlier, good defensive player, but it's the dynamism, it's the box to box ability. It's the the carrying the ball into dangerous areas, dragging players towards him, and that little cute pass that he played through the two Hungarian yeah. defenders to release Mir to then set up Ronaldo. Like, nobody else was making... And when you say nobody else was making them, this is Bernardo Silva and Diogo Jota. Like, these are the, the players that we're talking about should be able to do that, but they were doing it at half the speed that Sanchez was doing it. Exactly. And that's why he panicked people. It's also the slower it gets, the easier it is to defend against. Um, and I don't know, like it was, it was frustrating. I was a little angry. I was kind of excited about watching Portugal, and I was not cheated out of an experience. That's a bit dramatic, but it was, yeah, underwhelming. I'd start him next time. Me too. No question. Definitely me too. Me too. We'll be back after this, and we're back. Look at that. That was quick. Um, last thing I want to talk about today. Uh, or maybe there's two things I want to talk about, I suppose. Let's finish off with Portugal. Chances in the group. Let's do that. Because mm. Portugal-Germany now feels like a huge game, Seb. Yeah. I mean, it huge. felt like that anyway, but now it feels extra big. Yeah, it really does. I, I'd i return to what we said earlier. I'm not sure I trust Germany to score goals. I mean, you know, you could see, for instance, Portugal returning to that that double pivot blocking up the center of the pitch, inviting Germany to cross from wide positions, play close to the touchline and not having that that center forward to 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 kind of pivot around or to to capitalize on. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel very comfortable with any predictions about Germany. I don't feel like uh, I've seen them play. There were, there were a couple of moments tonight when they were great, when they were really fluid and smart and technical, but those were very fleeting moments. Do they have enough to pick apart Portugal? I don't know. Um However, at the other end, do I trust that German defense against Ronaldo, Jota, hopefully a kind of a um, a better used Bernardo Silva? Mm, eh, don't know. Don't know. I feel like this feeds into our, our last point about Jeopardy. Well, I, don't try and do my job for me, clever. Seb. I was being clever. Yeah. Sorry. Too clever for your own good, boy. Too clever by half. Alex, who's going to finish third in this Group F? Uh, Portugal. All right. Fine. There we go. I mean, I would say that my predictions so far have been abhorrent. Well, you're second place in the points, as we'll find out a bit later. Oh, okay. It's not so bad. But anyway, as... feel uh, bad. Yeah. (laughs) You feel bad. He has constructed a ludicrous system. No, I don't feel bad. (laughs) I thought you said you felt bad. Yeah, let's not go that way. No, I just... Yeah. (laughs) Looking back at them, I keep thinking, oh, why did I say that? Well, you know. Sure. Looking back at life, why did I do that? You know? We're all troubled by these thoughts as we sleep at night, aren't we? Or as we're, as we're trying to go to sleep normally, things that pop up from the past. Step back from that edge. <laughs> I don't do it while we're live. Listen, we were talking about Jeopardy before, and in a very different way, uh, there's, there's a real lack of Jeopardy in this tournament. 
Uh, and the reason I say that, Seb, is because there are actually, as you well know from reading this plan, mm-hmm. that there are 72 games in this tournament yep. to eliminate mm-hmm. eight teams before we get to the knockout stages. And that's too many, isn't it? And it's boring because it, it feels like, you know, you watch all of these first games since the tournament started last Friday to whatever day it is now. Uh, I feel a real lack of jeopardy, except in, as we said, the big clashes, because it sort of doesn't matter outside of the group of death. It's a lot of football to achieve very little. Yeah. And it's a feeling <laughs> that I had during the last European Championship, which is that you shouldn't be able to go through if you lose two games. You shouldn't be able to go yeah. through on three points, and it's very possible that teams will. Also, one of the one of the interesting parts of a group stage is the chance that you know a big team might get caught cold, have a bad first game, panic, pressure, negative press back home, and an absolute meltdown—a kind of a, a France two thousand two situation, which everyone likes to see, or or Spain in twenty fourteen. You know, the, these kind of things are important parts of the tournament. Now you can make an absolute hash of the group stage and still go through because... As the, Portugal did in 2016. As Portugal did in two, 2016. They they drew three games, they got three points, they still went through with... They went through on the same goal difference, <clears throat> the same points as Northern Ireland, and then yep. went on to win the tournament. Yeah, and the, the quality of teams that went through, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, and Slovakia went through. And you just think... I I understand the the value in an extra round, but I don't see the merit in keeping underperforming teams in a competition just for the sake of having a round of 16. Yeah. Because I, I always, I, I grew up with the, the European Championship going straight to a quarterfinals. And it felt like that was one of its USPs, that it was a, it was a, it was a tournament in which things could go quickly, quickly go wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you could have a, a shock result. And now, I don't know, it just feels like a tournament of second chances. And Why so, don't they just have two more groups <clears throat> and get well, more, and there'll be more jeopardy? Yeah, but maybe, but you still have to fill those groups with another eight teams. See, I'm more interested in that, though, because like the thing I like about, one of the things I like about watching the World Cup is watching all sorts of odd teams that I wouldn't normally see. No, I, I agree, but I, I just think that in this instance, the problem is that if you've won your first game, you're kind of through with two games to play. So England, well, that's not tempt fate, but Listening England, to you is making me want to clear my throat. <laughs> why don't you talk a bit and I'll clear my throat okay. off camera. I was going to say to you, Alex, that I assume you like Jeopardy as a human being. Are you feeling a lack of Jeopardy here in this tournament so far? Yeah, it feels, I mean, you know, the the Nations League has clearly done a good job of accelerating the progress of certain countries, North Macedonia being one. Uh, But I do feel like there is a significant power gap between the big nations and the smaller nations which means that the big nations can afford to kind of busk it a little bit, yeah. make these mistakes, not get themselves... I'm never going to say that an international football team isn't taking things seriously because that's mm. a really stupid thing to say. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think going into a tournament where you aren't sure of your best lineup, you aren't sure of your best formation in Germany's instance, you're not getting your double pivot right for Portugal. Like, these are... These are odd things. And it's actually kudos to Southgate, for example, that that his selections in that first game absolutely paid off. That mm. looked like something. And I think you made the point at the time. Yeah. That looked like a series of rehearsed decisions that he had really figured out. And I think he gets great credit for that. But if you know that there's at least one game that you can afford to lose, it does mean that you can be 
a little more, I don't know, experimental. It also feels like the motivation behind this is wrong. It's that if you if you lessen the jeopardy, you increase the chance of keeping big teams in the tournament. You have another round of games. You have the big teams in them. Your tournament makes more money. You're providing more guarantees for sponsors and broadcasting rights are easier to sell. And it just feels like the tournament is the victim. And this is going to be a, a continuous topic because it's going to happen when we move to three-team groups for the World Cup, which is, I, I don't even know how that's going to look, but I already know I don't want to see it. There was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing wrong with the original format until we, until at some point we decided that football just has to get bigger. There has to be more of it. There has to be another game here and there and here. And, I'm know, tired. I am also tired. And my voice is going. And I, I want to mm. go back to the old red line, which is really comfortable <laughs> and great. I just want really more, nice people and friends. I want more Jeopardy, and I don't care how it happens. <laughs> I do care. Um, all right. Well, the last thing to do to round off uh, this evening's uh, discussion uh, is to head to our points section, uh, where we've all added two points. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a bad day. We should say Seb uh, is the second person to get an accurate result. You predicted Portugal would win 3 0, and in the last six minutes of the game, they rewarded you. Before that, you were going to add. Three points. I was going to, yes. Was, yeah. yeah, but you cocked up at the second game, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, JJ still in first place on 21. Alex sniffing just behind on 22. Seb, again, more sniffing on 23. And then I, no, I, no one can smell me. I'm away on 28. <laughs> 28. 28. I added some points today. Do you know what? I went for my risky prediction of 4-0 Portugal, and it kind of you went bold. Off. You went bold. I, yeah. I did go pretty bold, yeah. yeah. What are tomorrow's games? We have got Turkey and Switzerland and Italy and Wales playing in various combinations, and I can't see the wall chart, so I don't. I'm going to look them up now. It's going. It's so it's Finland Russia first at two, and then it's Turkey Wales, and then Italy Switzerland for the last game of the day. Okay, very quickly, Seb. Turkey Wales, Uh, Turkey to win two 0 Uh huh. And Italy Switzerland. Ooh, really interesting. But I will take a one nil Italy win. And Finland Russia. One one, Alex. Uh, I'm going to say two one Finland. I'm going to say versus Russia. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say one nil Wales because I'm not feeling happy about Turkey anymore. Mm. Okay, I've let you down, and you massively <laughs> let me down. I'm turning my back on them. Uh, and I'm going to say, mm, I'm going to say three 0 Italy. Okay, I'm the- I, I thought Switzerland were pretty poor. I thought they were okay. I remember Braylon Bolo is one of my memories of the tournament. So one one Turkey Wales, Italy are going to draw one one with Switzerland. Okay, and uh, Finland Russia will also be one one. And that's my technique, to not be so bad at the game. Uh, right, Alex Stewart, thanking you. Thanks, Joe. And Seb Seffer-Bloor, thanking BTU. Thanking you very much, Joe Devine. Thank you to all the uh, the TPOs that have joined us in the chat this evening. We sure hope you're enjoying the tournament and having a lo- lovely Tuesday evening. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And, uh, of course, thanks as always uh, to Sol and Craig and Don, our lovely crew this evening, and Sol's going to give you a wave there in one of the cameras. There he is. Well, there we go. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the same, and I uh, hope you're looking forward to it, because we really are 
Bye now.